So first I need to say that um, we will go straight from the message into sharing of the Lord's Supper. And so out in the foyer we do have our, um, our communion cups. And if you hadn't grabbed one, I'd invite you to, to go get one of those. If you're at home, it'd probably be good to have some sort of bread or cracker and any kind of juice uh, handy so that we can go right into that time following the message. How do you feel about movie previews? Are you pro, con, love them? I noticed they used to be like a couple before the movie. And now, well, it's been a while. It's been a year since I've been in a movie theater. But, but I think at last count, they were up to like 25 minutes, you know. So whatever the movie time was, you knew you had about a good, anyways, I think they got a little out of hand. Ben loves them. And uh, he always would get so excited. And if we got there late and missed the movie previews, he, he'd get a little miffed. Um, at times, he would pay attention to when the, the dates... We, Cheryl and I would, would come and find Ben had written something in our journal, or our, our calendars, we couldn't tell what. And then we, we'd ask him, and it'd be, it'd be the, uh, the movie dates of whatever's coming out, because he would memorize when they were. But every now and then... What I love about him is you'd see one movie preview and you'd be like, I cannot wait to see that movie. And I'll tell you, the one I remember the most, when the Lord of the Rings movie started coming out 20-some years ago. I've just put myself in nerd territory, but I was so excited. I couldn't wait to actually see those movies in in the theater. Um, I say this because I want us to think today about our passage as something like one of those previews, that Jesus gives his disciples a sneak peek of what is to come, the glory that that will one day be. And so what I want to do this morning is look at what happens in our passage, go through the what's and, and talk about that, but then really focus on why? Why does Jesus do this? What purpose does the, this is known as the transfiguration, what purpose does it serve in God's salvation plan? So it starts with a trip up the mountain. Jesus picks three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he invites them to go with him up a high mountain. And the emphasis in it, especially when I kind of looked at it in the the Greek, was that they were getting alone by themselves. I've heard it suggested, well, they had to go up a high mountain because that's where you meet God. I don't think that's what it was. I think the idea of going up the mountain was getting to where no one else would see. This was for their eyes only. And these three would be key leaders in the church. Jesus wanted them to see what was to take place for a reason. Next, then, is the the main event. Jesus is transfigured. In Greek, it says metamorphosized. And and it seems like there's a difficult to to describe it, that they actually don't talk about Jesus himself. They talk about his clothes, his robes. And it mentions how they become dazzling white. Uh, I've seen, actually, you could fill in all kinds of adjectives. Radiant white, I saw in one version. Glistening white, that's my favorite. Or uh, radiant white, I think, was our ESV version. But it, it, 
it, I love how the, it literally says, so that no bleach, beyond what any bleach could ever bring clothes. Like, they can't really describe what they saw. That's the best they can do, but it was just amazing. And, and Jesus was radiant. And I was thinking about how in all of Mark, when Jesus encountered a, someone possessed by an evil spirit, that evil spirit would start yelling out, shrieking and crying out, I know who you are, holy one of God. You see, I think what the disciples saw was what those demons had seen all along, right? They, they, saw, they saw his brilliance that for human beings had been veiled, that they couldn't see it in his normal times. Jesus took off the veil just, for just a minute so his disciples could see the glory that truly was there. And the, the evil spirits would, would react to throughout his ministry because they could see what human eyes could. They could see the spiritual realm. Later, John, when he was an old man, would see Jesus up in the throne room of heaven in a vision. And there you'd get a more full description, I think, of Jesus' brilliance and glory. But it would be interesting if you have time Read this again and then go read Revelation chapter 1 and just compare that vision to one another. I'll just give you one clip. Clip It says, his, his face was shining like the, like the sun shining in full strength. That is the glory of Christ. Then Moses and Elijah appear, two great figures from the history of Israel. This is like they're equivalent to Washington and Lincoln. And they appear and they're talking with, with Jesus. Wouldn't you love to know what they were talking about? Could it be God did this just for his two, two faithful servants? That he, he said, hey, let me show you. These are going to be the guys that will carry on the work that you did so long ago, that they will now be the ones God's using. I, I, maybe he just did it just for Elijah and Moses' sake. Um, so that they could see that. Um, Peter's pretty excited, and, and Peter does not know how to not say something, right? He has to say something, and so, so he says, uh, Jesus, should I set up three booths for you guys, you know, three tents? Um, need a place to stay? You know, like he wants to keep it going, and, and it literally says, he did know, not know what he was saying because his mind, he was out of his mind due to fear. Like, this was so incredible. He just didn't know what to say. Um, and so soon, soon as he says that, then it's all gone. And the next thing you know, they're enveloped by a cloud. Um, they're kind of surrounded. Now, in the Old Testament times, God's presence came as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So they're enveloped in this cloud, and they hear the voice of God. And it's quite simple. This is my son. Listen to him. Similar to the God's voice in the baptism of Christ. This is my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. This is my son. Listen to him. The father honors the son just as the son honors the father. That is the relationship between Jesus and the father. And then all of a sudden again, it's over. And who knows how the time frame went that maybe they were just so overwhelmed this could have taken longer or could have been very quick. And on the trip down the mountain, 
they have questions. Jesus tells them, first of all, he says, um, don't, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man rises from the dead. And they're like, what does that mean? You know, that, that's big question number one. And then they actually get into some other questions we'll, we'll come to later. But Jesus actually seems willing to, to kind of help them process what they saw a little bit. So that's the what, those, those steps of what happened. The thing I've been thinking about all week is why. And, and actually, some of the stuff I'm sharing today is, is some new thoughts. And I think the why is especially connected to what we talked about last week. If you understand, this wasn't just Jesus showing off a little bit. There was a purpose in this, and it's response to what happened in Mark chapter 8. And I'll give you the quick version. Here's what I think the purpose of the transfiguration was. Why did Jesus do this and why now? He did it to give them a preview of his glory so that they would know that the cross was not a losing gamble. The, right before this, a little before this, G, Peter had first identified that Jesus is the Messiah. They first had come to, so Jesus had waited to show them this until they were ready to hear that. But what, what he's doing now is the transfiguration was pre preparing the disciples to hold on to their faith in Christ after seeing the one they knew now to be the Messiah, they would see him be rejected and put to shame on the cross. Be shamed and suffer. And so, Jesus was preparing them for that. The disciples had ideas about what it meant that Jesus was the Messiah. What the Messiah would do. Imagine what they might have been thinking. After what they had seen. They'd seen Jesus do amazing things. Calm storms, walk on water, turn water to wine, heal people, deal with demons. He, he could seem to do anything. Certainly, now that he, the Messiah, was here, he would use his power and prestige to, to bring about the kingdom, to bring about God's purposes. He would um, use his popularity with the crowd. The, the crowds were following him. He could, he could gather them. They could take over the temple. And kick out the corrupt priests and religious leaders of his time. Take over the temple. He could turn them into an army. They could kick out the Romans. The oppressive power that was, that was, that was keeping the, the Jewish people down. That's what they were picturing as the Messiah. As he would be exalted and take his, his rightful place. And where would they be? At his side... Lifted up with him, right? You know, he would be exalted and so would they. So as soon as Peter had identified that Jesus is the Messiah, what does Jesus do? He begins to tell them what it really means to be the Messiah. The work that he would do. How it would go. To be the Messiah means he would suffer. Be rejected be killed, and then rise again. That was the plan. Not to raise an army and, and kick out the Romans, but to be shame, put to shame, to suffer, to be killed, 
executed in in the most awful way imaginable on the cross. And when Peter heard that, he says, no way, this cannot be the plan. Jesus, we we won't let this happen to you. We'll stop that. Don't worry about that. And Jesus has to rebuke his, his top disciple and says quite clearly, this is the plan. You get behind me, Satan. What you have in mind are not the things of God, but the things of men. So he makes clear that going to the cross is the plan. The shame and suffering is the plan. And then he adds to it. And this is a part we didn't get into last Sunday when we were looking closely at this passage. Um, After making clarifying that in Mark 8, 34... He says, and not only is it the plan for me, it's the plan for any who would come after me. Hear these words, Mark 8, 34. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? If you would come after me, you have to follow me where I'm heading. Where I'm heading is shame, rejection, death. So get ready to take up your cross and follow me. If you try to save your life on your own, you're going to lose it. To be my disciple, you must take up your cross as well. Now imagine hearing that. You know, thinking, this does not make any sense, right? And and maybe they're thinking, we've bet our lives on you, Jesus, and now you're telling us that means us losing our life? How does that make any sense at all? And that's when we get to our passage, Mark 9. And what's Jesus say? Some of you here, you will see the kingdom of God come in power. You'll still be there. You will see God's power made real. And then he has to give him a visual illustration of it. So that's when he takes the three. He doesn't take all the disciples because I don't think think he knows that all 12 would not be able to keep silent about this. This has to be kept quiet. It's not yet time to go public. So he takes just the three and he he picks these three specific because they will be the key leaders in the church. Peter would be the leader who would boldly stand up and proclaim Jesus is the way of salvation. He's risen from the dead um, later after Jesus is gone. And he would stand and do that at the risk of his own life. He would be the, 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 the spokesman for the group. James would be the first to give his life as a martyr. John would be the one, first of all, who's standing next to Peter giving him courage. But John would be the one who would testify all the way to being an old man. While the rest of the disciples had eventually died, John would be the one who lived. And as an old man, he could write, this is what we've seen. We've seen the one and only the Holy One, full of glory. Right? So Jesus picked these three because he needed them to be convinced that following him was worth it. And so they see the glory of Jesus. They see something that would stick in their head. They'd never forget this. Because there'd be another image stuck in their head. That of Jesus dying on the cross. 
that of him bloody and shamed and stripped naked and spit upon and flogged, the crown of thorns on his head. They'd see the body brought down after all that abuse and put in a tomb. That image would stick in their head, and he had to give them a counter image. Later in, when he wrote Revelation, John would put those images together. He'd say, Jesus is the lamb who was slain, but he's also the lion of Judah. He's the lion of power and the lamb in one person. They saw Moses and Elijah, and they would know that death is not the end. Moses went back to 1200 B.C., Elijah about 800 B.C., that they, even though had dead, were still alive with God. So even if they... um, Even if following Jesus in this life means death, he's still worth it. And then they heard the voice of God simply saying, this is my son, listen to him. This is the plan. Trust him. He knows what he's talking about. Don't argue with him. Right? Parents, can you you imagine telling your kids, don't argue with him. This is the plan. We're doing this, you know. Um, All this was to reassure them that following Jesus is worth it, even if it seems like they're headed to their own deaths when they follow him. They had to be convinced. All of it was designed to keep these men going and and not give up after the cross. And so that they could then, these three would bring the teaching about this, about the glory of Christ and the reality of eternal life to the rest of the, the disciples after the resurrection. That's why this happens. So if you're watching a a movie preview, if it's a good one, it doesn't give away everything. It still leaves you with questions, right? Some some movie previews, you know the whole plot, and you've seen all the funny lines already. You, You don't really need to see the movie. But if it's a good movie preview, you're like, ooh, I wonder what this is about. You have good questions. So they had questions coming down that mountain. Um... First one I, I want to throw out is, why Moses and Elijah? How, how, why were they picked? I mean, yes, they're major figures in the Old Testament in the history of Israel, but I think there's even more specific. One is they represent the, the, the truth about eternal life with God, that God has life after death. You see, neither Moses nor Elijah ended up in a grave. Moses had died on the mountain, and it said that God himself buried him and that no one knows where that was. They looked to find where, where Moses was, but, but they, they could not find a tomb. Could it be God just, hey, come hang out with me, you know? Um, Elijah was even more clear. Elijah, when his end came, he took his protege Elisha with him and crossed to the same area that Moses had died, And then Elisha sees a chariot of fire swoop down and pick up Elijah and take him straight up to heaven. So we know Elijah was just hanging out up there. Uh, But the the Old Testament does not give a lot of specificity about life after death and what that means. But you have these pictures, you have these stories. And I think Moses and Elijah now highlight that truth. That if we are with God, we are not really dead. We are alive with him. The second reason why I think it's Moses and Elijah is they they represent 
the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. When Jesus would talk about the, the scriptures, he would say the law and the prophets. Well, Moses is the one who gave the law, and Elijah was the greatest of the prophets. So together, the Moses and Elijah represent the entire Old Testament. And now, they're pointing ahead to the, to the good news of the Savior, to the gospel. So the law and the prophets point to the gospel to come, the good news of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. Other questions? On the way down, the, the disciples ask, what does raised from the dead mean? Now that may seem obvious, but think about it for a minute. They had seen people bring people back to life, right? They, they saw the, the little girl who had been dead brought back to life. Other miracles, um, uh, Lazarus. Being raised from the dead is not the same thing as being brought back to life. Those brought back to life still later died. They, they were brought back with the same bodies they started with. But to be raised to life in a, um, is more than that. We're raised to life in, in a, body, a physical body, but one that's now in a glorious state. No longer prone to sickness, death, and weakness. And so it's more than just being brought back to life. It's being brought to, back to a new state of life. A state of glory. Another question they ask is, well, why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? You know, if, if Jesus, if you're the Messiah... I thought Elijah was supposed to come before the Messiah came. How, how, how did that play out? And, and if you go to Malachi chapter 4, that's where the, the scriptures do talk about Elijah coming first. In fact, it mentions both Moses and Elijah back to back. But in verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. The scribes are right. Elijah would have to come first before the Messiah. So how does Jesus respond? He says, yeah, Elijah comes first. Um, it's part of the plan about how the Son of Man must suffer. But I tell you, Elijah did come first. He already came. And they did to him whatever they wanted to do. Now, having studied this, I, I know exactly what he's talking about. And I, I, I don't know if, if all of you would know this offhand or, or if it would be immediately recognizable to you, but I'll tell you the disciples did know what he was talking about because of all the stuff they'd heard before. And in fact, the God, Matthew, when he tells the same story, he tells us what Jesus is referring to. And he says in Matthew, at the same, when he tells the story the same way, he says, and the disciples knew immediately he was talking about John the Baptist. So they knew what Jesus meant. They meant the death of John. They meant that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He wasn't Elijah literally raised from the dead or anything, but he came in that same spirit and power. He, he represented Elijah. And so his death then foreshadowed the death, the suffering of the Messiah. That is God's plan. When you watch a movie preview, you want to, you really want the movie to be worth it. Like sometimes it's a great preview, but the movie itself is, eh. 
right? Um, will the movie live up to what, what is really planned? Well, the good news is, is that was just a sneak peek of the glory yet to come. That was just a smidge of what God has planned for those who love him. And there'll come a day when, when we will join in that glory. What they saw on the mountain is God's plan for all who belong to Christ. It says in Philippians 3, it says our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. What happened to Jesus will happen to you and me. And that, and that, it says in the flash, in the twinkling of an eye, it, it'll just, and we will be transformed. We'll be raised into this glorious state. Not just raised out of the grave, but if we're dead, that'll happen. Or if we're alive, it'll just happen where we're at. But we'll, we'll be raised to this glorious state that, that Jesus had up on that mountain. But there's something the Bible wants to make clear. And Jesus makes clear, but Romans 8 says this. It says, in order to share in the glory of Christ, we must share in his sufferings. There's no way to get to the glory other than go with Jesus to the cross. And it says that over and over and over again. I think we, we want to we jump right to glory, right? We want to say yes to Jesus and, and we would be immediately exalted. But no, it says, Jesus in Mark 8, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. And must deny, if you seek to save your own life, you're going to lose it. The only way to save your life is to lose it to me is to trust me with it. Philippians 3, Paul talks about, says, I want to know Christ, and I want to know everything about him. I want to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings, and I want to know him in the power of the resurrection. And so somehow like that to share with him in the resurrection of the dead. Um, later in Romans 8, 17, it talks about how sons and God, sons and daughters of God, we have an inheritance. And that's where it says, provided we suffer with him in order that we might glorify it with him. But it goes on to say in Romans 8, I consider the sufferings of this present time nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in us as sons and daughters of God. And then I love this line. It says, creation itself waits with eager expectation for the revealing of the sons of God. The movie will be worth it, far better than the preview. Can we believe following Jesus is worth it? Even if it means and it does mean losing our life before we can find it. In a literal sense, it, it, it must mean we must be ready to die and give our life for faith in Christ. The disciples were ready for that. When Jesus said, we're going to go to Jerusalem, he says, well, let us go with him that we might die with him. 
But I think it's also very much broader than that. Back to Mark 8, it says, if we want to save our life, we must lose it. If we're trying to find life on our own, life in terms of this world, life the way the world describes it, we will miss it. How does the world say to find life? What does it tell you to do? Well, a few thoughts. It says, get as much as you can for yourself. Get as much of, of stuff and the biggest house and the best the bestest of stuff. Um, the world says, promote yourself, self-promotion. Put yourself first in line. Get your name out there. The world says, if you want to have life, you need to accrue power and prestige through achievements. Or I think maybe what I hear more often recently is the world will say, Life is found in experiences, travel, adventures, right? Go on these extravagant things. Find life by hiking the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu. Scuba dive along the Great Barrier Reef. Climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Go walk the Great Wall of... Like, that's how you find life as you do all that exciting stuff. But the truth is, we could do all of those things. You could have the very best of what this life has to offer and get to the end and find yourself lonely and hurting and miserable. How many people reach the top of their ladder, the, the top of achievement, became famous, well-known, rich and powerful, and then took their lives? Because they got there and found out it didn't meet what they really needed. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? And what can we give in exchange for our soul? Jesus says life is found in denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him. Life is found in taking the role of a servant. Life is found in considering the interests of others ahead of your own. Life is found instead of insisting everyone listen to you, but being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Life is found in forgiving people and not holding on to grudges. Life is found in stepping out of your comfort zone to reach out to, to new people. Life is found in radically loving others, even your adversaries. Life is found in spending your life to help those who are hurting or in need. You want adventure? Get to know a homeless person. Have a genuine conversation, not just to preach at them. Just get to know them. Find out their story. Might be interesting. You want experiences? Give up a day of comfort to go spend it on, someone, uh, on helping someone in need. You want risk? Build a no-strings-attached friendship with someone who doesn't believe in God and thinks Christianity is a scam. Don't, don't go preach at them. Just get to know them. Build a friendship with them and just see what God can do with that. That's what Jesus is offering. We deny ourselves and we, we take the role of a servant, humbly serving and loving others and following Jesus as we do it. It's so tempting to want to follow Jesus on our own terms, right? Wasn't that Peter willing to do? I'll follow you, Jesus, if it means I get exalted. But what if it means taking the route of the cross, humbly serving, 
denying yourself life, maybe missing out on promotions, maybe never getting noticed. Is Jesus worth following? Will you follow Jesus wherever he leads, or are you only going to follow him when you see the benefit for yourself? Will you, will we share in his sufferings in order that we might share in his glory? That's the question we've got to ask this morning. And it's the question we've got to ask before we share together in the Lord's Supper. Because what we do when we share in the Lord's Supper is we identify ourselves with Jesus. We join him at the table, right? He becomes part of us, and we of him. We take his name, and where he goes, we go. And so before we eat today, I want you to ponder those questions. I want you to take a time of confession and think about that question. Is he worth following, even if it means following him to the cross? So let's take a time of silent prayer.